Hi there. Servus. My name is Haishan Wade, and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical reality of today. And today, I have a bit of a big one. I have a big one. Today, we're going to talk about... I actually don't... I don't have a way of neatly summarizing all that I have. Uh, not because it's, like, a lot. It's about normal. But more so because each topic is a bit over the place. I've done my best to kind of link the topics in so it flows like a... It flows naturally. But we're going to be kind of all over the place. There will be a decent emphasis on the second wave of lockdowns, largely sweeping across Europe and the talks of it in America. Uh, You'll understand in a minute, and hopefully you'll be entertained in the process. So, uh, yeah. See you in a minute. Alright, so last time we talked a little bit about the lockdowns, but more so we were talking about some of the unintended consequences of those lockdowns uh, across the world and some of the unrest and the issues that have erupted across the world uh, as a result of them. And uh, it wasn't a pretty picture, Uh, we'll we'll just say that now, but uh, we do have an update on the story of that teacher in France who got beheaded, his name was Samuel Paddy. Um, So another woman was beheaded in France, and this led to uh, more comments by Emmanuel Macron calling out the violence uh, that is easily associated with Islam, and has caused widespread uh, anti-French sentiments in the Islamic world. Now, what did I see? I saw a video where he was doing an interview. It was in French, obviously, so I kind of had to read the subtitles. Um, And he was really going off uh, on the violence in, shockingly to me, uh, the incompatibility of some of the values of Islam versus what he called core French values. And when you think back to what uh, many politicians were talking about, in particularly in Europe, over the past four, six years, how it was all about inclusion, uh, diversity, and, you know, we have to accept everybody in all their cultures. And to an extent, people could agree with that. But here you have, like, this 180 uh, at the very least, that's what it seems. This 180, where instead of putting aside his own values or the values of his own country, he is instead putting aside the sentiments of Islam in favor of French values. And that was very interesting to me and a couple other people that I watch uh, who've covered the topic have also pointed out uh just that same thing. Anyway, um, it's a bit bewildering. It's bewildering, really, especially given um, Macron's um, record of not exactly being the most nationalist person in the world and being more globalist slash internationalist. Oh, and sorry for the noise in the background. My neighbor uh, moved in. He's setting up shop, I'm assuming. And, but, um, yeah, he, this this... French President Emmanuel Macron, he is 
again, not the most nationalist person in the world, but recently with, like, the riots in France, where you had people trying to tear down statues and burn art, he's really been taking this harsh, harder and harder stance in favor of France. And it's like, wow. It's incredible how things have changed in sh just a short amount of time. Because th this has all happened in, like, 2020. This that's that's the time frame we're talking about here, and I know that it might not be like a surprise, you know, because 2020 feels like it's been approximately 2,020 years since the beginning of 2020 itself. But um, yeah, this really short time frame where he is taking this radical shift to the right, this radical shift to the right, considering where he was before. And uh, the update I have on the story, aside from, you know, my shock at his political transformation regarding the issue, um, was is that a UAE Minister of State Foreign Affairs, uh, he recently commented on the remarks made by uh, Emmanuel Macron. And what was interesting here is that he said, that, again, this is the Minister of uh, state foreign affairs for the United Arab Emirates, he says that Muslims in the West need to be integrated in a better way. And that stood out really a lot to me because last time we had talked, we were covering how uh, many countries in the Muslim world were boycotting French goods, or at the very least calling for boycotts of French goods. And it was, so this stands out quite a bit because it's literally the opposite of what they were doing in that he's saying Emmanuel Macron is kind of right on this one you and you can't go to someone else's country and then disrespect what they have he says now he didn't say that specifically but it's kind of implied in his statement that Muslims in the West need to be assimilated better doesn't make much sense to move to a country if you're not going to become one with the culture and the people. And uh, we'll see where this pans out, you know, whether or not he gets fired from his job or if other Muslim nations react negatively to him, uh, similarly to how they've reacted to Macron and France in general. But that was a very interesting thing that I was able to pick out while gathering news for this episode. Yeah, I guess... I, don't, I really don't know what to make of it. I'm, I'm just going to be honest. I really don't know what to make of it. Because it's so different from the other political commentary and political statements made by uh, officials in the Islamic world regarding the situation in France, again, where the teacher, Samuel Paddy, uh, made depictions of the Prophet Muhammad, which is strictly forbidden in Islam, uh, and he was beheaded for it. So, it's very interesting. Maybe he's, maybe he's, um, not, like, hardcore, like, like a hardcore Muslim, maybe that's it. Maybe, uh, who knows, who knows. But it was very interesting to see. Now, while we're still on the subject of France, 
I'm going to move into this next topic, which is a second French lockdown. Now, last week, French President Emmanuel Macron, uh, kind of at the same time, because he was in between this and the last topic we just talked about, the um, beheading and the conflict between French and Muslim culture, um, amidst that, he was also announcing a second lockdown in France. And when he did this, and as it came closer and closer to the date that that lockdown would be imposed, I think it was, what was it? It was either Saturday or Friday when I saw the videos myself. Not of him giving the speech saying that the lockdowns are going to come, but the videos of the response that the people had. And not like an interview, but more so the tens of thousands of French trying to flee the city of Paris ahead of the second lockdown. It was ridiculous. Like, I'm, I'm sure you could look it up quickly if you like did a quick search on YouTube or Google of French flee Paris. And it's, it's insane. It's like you have hundreds of miles of traffic. That, that was reported, hundreds of miles of traffic. But when you actually see the video, it's, oh my goodness. It's like bumper to bumper traffic jam. It, it was a gridlock. And it wasn't just like the interstate. It wasn't just like the highways leading in and out of the city. It was the streets leading up to the highways. It was the streets leading to the streets that led to the highways. The on-ramps, the off-ramps. Uh it was ridiculous and people were on car people were in their cars trying to go they weren't going anywhere cuz you couldn't move there were people in motorcycles and bikes trying to move maneuver their way through the crowds of cars there were people on everyone was trying to leave you know the people that were trying to leave then there were tens of thousands of them and they were all trying to leave at the same time and they were getting out however they could you had people some people were going by foot. That's what, it, or at least that's what it looked like. Maybe they were just walking to a different part of the city. Who knows? Maybe they were just that dedicated to getting out before the lockdowns. And part of the lockdown is you can't leave without. You're not allowed to be outside without having your papers ready to end a reason that is approved by the government for leaving your home. And. When you see that, it's kind of no wonder why people would be so adamant to get out. And this was kind of like the last lockdown, really. The you can't leave without government approval. Uh, so that was basically what happened in the last French lockdown. And I guess people who had a taste of it and had the means to leave said, yeah, we're not doing this anymore. So that's how you get tens of thousands of them my uh, tens of thousands of french people fleeing paris any way they can there was also videos of like these subway stations and you had these masses of people uh trying to get on the train and oh be, me being the history nerd that i am uh, all i saw looking at those images were like uh not so much the images of people getting on the trains to go to the uh training centers for World War One, when all, millions of people signed up willingly to go to the military, but instead more like the trains of uh, English who are sending their kids to the countryside 
so that they could avoid getting bombed by the Nazis. And it was insane because it's like, ah, you really have to see the videos to really understand just how crazy it all was. And when I tell you there was no room to move, there's, there is no room to move. It's, it was crazy. It's crazy. And the store shelves, there's also videos of these, the store shelves were picked clean. It's like, it was literally just like the first lockdown. Oh, oh, so long ago. Again, 2020 feels like by itself, it's been 2020 years packed within this one year time span. Does anyone else even remember when the first lockdowns began? It feels like so long ago, back when things were, things were normal. Now they want a new normal that I want no part of. And on top of it all, there's riots erupting. Likely the people who can't afford to leave the city on short notice, um, rioting in defiance of new lockdowns. And you can understand it, really, especially given what we talked about in the last episode, these unintended side effects of the lockdowns that ended up being, as far as we can tell at this point, worse than the virus, really, in many cases. I mean, you had... What child trafficking increases in India? You had riots in Italy and Britain. You had economic stress in poorer parts of the world. I didn't even I didn't even cover the starvation that was projected uh, for many African nations that are not food secure, and that means they can't grow their own food and they are reliant on imports from the major food exporters. So when the major food exporters locked down their economy, suddenly that food, the reliability of them getting that food was thrown into question. And so food has essentially become a non-renewable resource in many of these countries. And there's already fighting over this basic essential need. And those are just some of the side effects of the lockdowns now we're looking at second wave of lockdowns. Um, there were, and people are reasonably fed up, you know, because not even uh, not even going towards like the countries that are dependent on many first world nations for their existence and survival, but in the first world countries themselves, where people lose their jobs and their livelihoods, and they don't know how they're going to get by just next month because you got to buy food. You got to pay rent. Well, at least for now, some many people don't have to pay rent, at least in America anyway. But it's the, the uncertainty is a killer. The uncertainty is a killer, and it's definitely not good for the nerves. So it's reasonable that people would take to the streets. And now they have joined the many other people rioting for different reasons some of them for police brutality or some of them uh simply to you know simply to loot and steal because there's chaos and the chances that they'll get caught are slim and then there's people rioting for other reasons that i personally don't know of but the unrest is growing and uh, effectively, it's going to defeat the purpose of the lockdowns if you have this mass unrest at the same time you're having lockdown. So, 
expect COVID to continue, COVID cases to continue rising, uh, so long as there's still unrest in the streets. Mm. There were riots in Italy as well. I think I mentioned riots in Italy last episode, but for different reasons. And this this time, for this specific reason, it is because the Italian government is also pursuing a second lockdown. And the Italians, are who were one of the worst hit by the virus, um, they're not happy with a second lockdown. Uh, I'd imagine the Spanish, who were also on the list of worst hit countries, uh, they are also going to be not happy about a potential second lockdown. Even the UK, uh, has they've already begun their second lockdown. I, and last week, Boris Johnson was uh, talking about a second lockdown, and now, t- as of today, Britain has already entered into their second lockdown. And, well... So we'll see where that goes. And re- really, all of Europe, at the very least Western Europe, are going through a second wave of lockdowns. Uh, even even Eastern Europe is in uh, COVID restriction territory. I read an article today talking about how Poland... Uh, oh, I, I actually have it on deck. I guess I'll skip to it now. There was unrest in Poland... Uh, not due to the lockdowns, but instead it was due to a ruling by their constitutional tribunal, I think that's what it was. Uh, their constitutional tribunal, which I would assume would be their equivalent of, say, the Supreme Court here in the United States. Uh, they had a ruling that banned abortions, um, and it seemed that it was more piecemeal, because this specific one was them banning uh, abortions even in the event of medical complications to the mothers. So, basically, no universal abolition of abortion. Kind of the opposite of what many um, many more left-leaning people in uh, America and Europe would advocate for. And what's interesting here, and the reason I bring it up, is because the uh, a trend that I've noticed about governments in Europe, at least uh, lately, is that while they don't like to set the precedent um, for divisive issues, that doesn't stop them from following the footprints of other European nations when they set precedent when they bite the bullet and set and basically grab everyone's attention and my example for that being their stance on immigration everybody was pro pro migrant uh you're a racist if you don't want them you're xenophobic if you don't accept them but then uh nobody wanted to impose border restrictions italy un uh, when I think his name was Matteo Silvini, he imposed restrictions for a period of time, but then he, um, he, his party lost the government because you know Europe works primarily on a parliamentary system, so it's a little bit more complicated than what we have here in America. So his government was outvoted by like a coalition or whatnot, 
so he was out and then immigration into Italy flowed stronger so Italy kind of set the precedent for controlling the border and from there Greece and Bulgaria who had a border with Turkey they built border walls when the Turks who were being paid by the EU to keep the Syrian refugees in Turkey Turkey basically said uh, there's something something happened between Turkey and the EU that Turkey didn't like so Turkey released the migrants but Greece and Bulgaria had built like makeshift fortifications to keep them out and the EU verbally stood behind them and now we're at a point where Britain and France and Italy Greece and Bulgaria and Hungary Hungary also led the charge by the way vast swaths of Europe are now talking about border security and immigration security whereas a couple years ago it was taboo the European governments don't necessarily like um, setting the precedent for divisive issues but once the precedent by any other European nation has been set it is effectively set for the rest of Europe and the rest of Europe will follow through if they so choose so that's why I bring up this um, rather divisive issue across many in the West this divisive issue of abortion and its ruling in Poland because now that Poland has set the they've uh, what what did I say they've set the precedent there we go they set the precedent and uh, Poland was also a part of the border control community before it was you know mainstream now that they have set the precedent for abortion are other European nations going to be next and given the trend of Europe um, allowing other countries to set precedent for divisive issues before they step in and throw their hat into the ring I think that's a very valid question to ask because one nation that I would imagine if they haven't already done it already uh, I would imagine Hungary would be next on board to ban abortion and it'll probably who who knows who comes next but I imagine three or more and then from there it becomes a mainstream topic you know whether or not to ban abortion rather than whether or not to legalize abortion and that'll become the new orthodoxy in Europe and it seems unlikely now but I really want you to think about those examples I gave you and think about how unlikely border control and, and safety, uh, how unlikely it seemed that that would even be brought to the table just a couple years ago, but now it's all, it's everywhere. Everybody's talking about it. Even Germany is getting around to the topic. Britain is talking about its sovereignty and immigration is at the forefront of the argument. So, Poland, having led the charge on immigration, will they now lead the charge on this? And I only bring it up because it's a divisive issue, and the, the habit of European nations to allow other European nations, when they have the chance, of course, to allow other European nations to set the precedent on these divisive issues. So, will this be next?
who knows I'll attempt to keep my eye posted on this cause it it'll be quite the social development it'll be quite the social development but back to um the partially general theme of the lockdowns uh, I mentioned that the UK has already begun its second lockdown by this point France will have begun its second lockdown as well now the interesting thing here is that many politicians will say we listen to the science on this but the scientists um and at the World Health Organization I forgot to mention this last episode but they are at this point advocating against lockdowns they saying they're saying that strategies to deal with covid should not include lockdowns anymore and that's a radical shift but uh many governments obviously are no longer ignoring that in favor of the other science that says yes lockdowns so uh, we'll, we'll see where that goes we'll see where that goes and as far as america goes whether or not we enter a second lockdown that depends almost entirely actually it dep- it doesn't depend entirely on if Biden wins because if Biden wins he is highly likely to institute a second lockdown he says he'll listen to the scientists if they say yes and I brought up the World Health Organization saying no to lockdowns uh, a week ago come in this list of countries across Europe that are entering into second lockdowns uh, because they listen to science and bringing up how that could very easily be the trend that is set in that the World Health Organization scientists are ignored in favor of scientists that say lockdowns. So Biden is more likely to institute a second lockdown in America. If he doesn't win, well, there will be no lockdown at all because Trump has made it very clear that he wants to he doesn't want lockdowns anymore he has said i believe in the debate that if we can't that we won't have a country if we keep this up and based on what i've been able to see and gather from across the world that's kind of true you know these side effects these unintended side effects of the lockdowns are horrific really it's really bad and i quite frankly would appreciate not having any of that over here i don't want any of it and if he wins there will be no lockdowns and in fact you'll see the continuation of the reverse which is a reopening of america and if trump wins i would expect a full reopening of the american economy in a relatively short period of time because well covid has unfortunately become an election year issue which means it's a partisan issue but once the election is over and the likely unrest that ensues is dealt with uh, i imagine that the restrictions will be eased up uh pretty swiftly pretty swiftly probably before the summer of 2021 i expect all the states in the US to uh, uh lift up uplift their restrictions uh either mostly or totally you know 
it'll obviously vary state by state, just like the responses to COVID have, uh, with potentially New York and California being the last states to fully reopen. But who knows? Who knows? Uh, who knows exactly how long it'll be, but I do expect a reopening to happen very quickly after the election if Trump wins. And I expect a lockdown if Biden wins. This, that, that's the way it is. That's the way it is. But while we're on the topic of the Americans, uh, I will use us as a transition to India. Because the U.S., and India have agreed to an intelligence-sharing uh, cooperative effort. And basically, America is going to be sharing its intelligence with the Indian military. And part of that intelligence includes satellite reconnaissance. Now, what could the Indians use American satellite reconnaissance for? Oh, I don't know. Maybe locating uh, military camps and bases that the Chinese had built in the Himalayas. You know. Things that are hard to find, really hard to find, but uh, they're relatively easy to find when you have a satellite, an eye in the sky. But uh, that was an interesting thing that I noted. Uh, not so much for the anti-China coalition that is building up in the real Cold War, um, but rather America refusing to offer up its own troops. And it's military hardware, so long as it is operated by America. Yeah, I think that is just another show of this increasing retrenchment by America, despite the blatant in, uh, involvement that this is. So, to clear that up, this act of blatant involvement is somehow still a sign of America's retrenchment and refusal for involvement. And as oxymoronic as that sounds, when you look at the fact that America, uh, our troop deployment numbers keep going down. They keep going down, and uh, we're increasingly offering less and less material support. Material support that comes from us, you know. We, we'll sell you a tank and a jet. We won't send you a brigade, is basically what's happening here. India is the real player in the second Cold War, a Cold War that I mentioned, what was it, two episodes ago, uh, that I mentioned was going to be fought between India and China. Uh, this is their Cold War, the, and all of Asia are the players. The Belt and Road Initiative is going to expand the field of competition between India and China, uh, further east into the Middle East, the Chinese want a direct land link into, uh, at the very least, Iran, so that they can tap Iranian oil for their oil needs, and that would, uh, well, that would be a great help to the Iranians, but they would have to opt into the Belt and Road before beforehand. So we'll see where that goes, and what the Indians will do in response. Because Right now, the Indians kind of have this unofficial alliance that is boxing China in. The official alliance that the Indians have is them and Japan. 
I do remember that they signed a 10-year military pact uh, but with each other. So that is literally China's southwest and China's east. Yes, yes, east. Oh, frick. Uh, the field of competition that the Belt and Road Initiative was going to expand, it goes west, not east. Um, I messed that up. But you get what I mean. You get what I mean. So that's the real Cold War brewing between China and India. I explained who I believed, um, where I believed the chips could fall. You know, the Philippines is a wild card. Indonesia is a potential wild card. And Pakistan is leaning in China's favor. Uh, And the main issue that the Chinese are going to have in this Cold War is that many of its potential uh, Cold War allies are Muslim nations be it Shia or Sunni, and they are currently committing a genocide of the Uyghurs in western China, a province known as Xinjiang, and Uyghurs are ethnically Muslims. So that will always be a point of tension that the Chinese are going to always have to deal with every time they try to expand their influence into predominantly Muslim nations. And it's not just Asia and the Middle East, It's um, the Muslim world that expands into Africa. So, the East African coastline, basically. Lots of high Muslim populations. And these are places that the Chinese are trying to do business with for resource purposes. Let Let me grab my words for a minute. The Chinese are trying to do business in East Africa for the resources that they have so that they can continue to fuel their industrial base because they don't have the resources themselves and they need lots. The, the Chinese manufacturing base is huge. They need lots of raw materials and they can get them from Africa. And partially, China is trying to build like, how do I put it? They're trying to build like a low wage base for their industrial goods. Uh, or at least their industrial inputs. So basically, China wants Africa to be their own China. Um, uh, a better way of putting that would be uh, China wants Africa for the same reasons that Western nations wanted China, and that's low wages, lower pay, lower input costs, which means bigger profit, bigger margins of profit. There we go, there we go. Mm, Africa is... The places in Africa that China wants to do business are majority Muslim. So the Uyghur issue is always going to plague the Chinese everywhere they go. And that could be India's way in. That could be India's way in. Because uh, India doesn't really have a choice but to fight the Cold War with China. Um, China's right there. China wants to exert its influence. China is openly hostile and antagonistic towards India. So India doesn't really have much of a choice but to play the game. And I think India's winning strategy is going to be to sow discourse on a religious level between China and the Muslim nations that China would try to recruit to their side, if not necessarily for the Cold War, but if at the very least for the Belt and Road Initiative. And they, they want to build a rail line from China 
to Iran in the Middle East to tap the oil, there's lots of militant groups in the Middle East and along the way in Central Asia, Afghanistan, Pakistan, um, heck, even Iran and the the Middle East proper, you know, that we would associate with the Middle East, Arabia, Iraq, Kuwait. Lots of places where that rail line can be interrupted and bombed and sabotaged and have crew and people killed. So that could be India's winning strategy in their Cold War with China, uh, relying on a network of allies that are potentially mutually, either already mutually antagonistic to China or could very easily be swayed towards being antagonistic towards China due to the Uyghurs. That could be India's winning strategy. China's winning strategy would be uh, basically trying to get its economy to prosper so much that they can do what America did during our Cold War, which was pay people to be on your side, basically. People who, even when they hate you, they're still on your side. And that could be China's winning strategy and basically making countries so economically dependent on them that they, the only resistance they can offer is words and not military and diplomacy. So those are the potential winning strategies for both sides in the real Cold War that is brewing in the South China Sea between India and China. Now, when we come back, I will discuss why this episode uh, took a bit longer to make. Um, uh, basically, where we're going. Where we're going. Uh, I'll explain in just a minute. I'll explain in just a minute. So, stay tuned. Alright, we're back. And before we move on, I want to talk about the real reason I brought Indy up in today's episode... And, uh, actually, I guess this fix in, uh, this fits into the, what I just talked about previously with the real Cold War brewing between India and China, uh, and that is that India is outraged by Pakistan, and, well, when aren't they outraged by Pakistan, but it's because Pakistan's Prime Minister, Imran Khan, made public his plans to, uh, make the disputed region of Gilit Baltistan, um, a fifth province of Pakistan. Now, this is, uh, I wouldn't say it's huge, but I would say it's another flashpoint potentially between India and Pakistan, who do have a very long history of border disputes and multiple, and they fought multiple wars like hot wars, not cold wars. They have fought multiple wars since their independence in 1947. I do believe the official count was six wars in total. And when you put that in the broader context of the new cold war and the fact that Pakistan is leaning towards uh, being on China's side, but is still kind of like a wild card in all this. A conflict, a hot conflict between them and India could make official the Cold War, you know, in the eyes of the political punditry and the experts on geopolitical relations, it could make the Cold War official, you know, 
because we had, we as in America, we had lots of proxy wars between us and the Soviet Union, where we, where if we sent in our troops directly, the Soviets would supply uh, material aid to our enemy, and where the Soviets put their troops in directly, we would supply material aid to their enemy. So what could happen is if another war broke out between India and Pakistan, you could see the Chinese, in exchange for, um, you know, Pakistan accepting Chinese claims in, say, Kashmir, or turning a blind eye to the Uyghurs permanently, uh, you could see the Chinese offer up military and economic aid to Pakistan, and whether or not the Belt and Road Initiative uh, at the very least, the segments that are in Pakistan are complete. You could see the Chinese use that infrastructure uh, to great lengths and really pump Pakistan full of, say, tank, bus, anti-tank weaponry, anti-aircraft batteries, uh, lots and lots of guns to arm m mountain militias and to arm their armed forces with, really. Because if a war were to break out, it would... Uh, how do I it would probably take on the shape of World War One after a while, because you're talking, but the border between India and Pakistan, until you go very very far north to the Himalayas, it's wide open. Uh, I mean, like wide open. It's flat, wide open and flat, which makes well, the types of warfare that capture the imagination, uh, like World War One and Two and the Napoleonic Wars. It makes those types of wars very easy to fight, especially once you get past the desert. Well, heck, Iran and Iraq made the desert made desert warfare seem fun. So, I would imagine wars, initially a war of movement between those two, and then it would settle down into trench warfare, as you would dig in to try to uh, secure your gains, and then people do that across the front line, and you get well, the trenches, except there's populations of a hundred million or more on each side, well, a billion or more on, in the case of India, it'd be catastrophic, especially if they resorted to nukes, I don't think they would unless they started losing, but that could be, uh, even in a limited capacity, if it, it would just a very short and brief war, it could kick off an official uh, an air of officiality to the Cold War between India and China, and maybe then people will see that um, <clears throat> I'm right. Mm -hmm. But that was an uh, one more interesting thing that I've noted. Now, uh, now that we have reached the second segment that I call meat, I call the big pieces the meat. This is part two of the meat, and that is, of course the US election which at this time well at the time of this recording is tomorrow <clears throat> now given the differences in their stances and I mean between the two presidential candidates Donald J Trump and Joe I almost said Joseph Joe Biden maybe that is his full name I don't, I don't know but given the differences in their stances and the really difficult situation that the country and, well, quite frankly, the entire world finds itself in, this election is probably going to determine the fate of more than just America. 
it'll definitely obviously determine the fate of America and the course of direction that America goes in, but it'll also determine the fate of many other parts of the world. And I guess that's kind of been true of many of the past U.S. elections, but many of the other administrations weren't so, say, hell-bent on rewriting the rules of the game as this administration has, whereas now you have a competition instead between two people who wanted to remain in, within the confines of the grand geopolitical system that was forged to fight the Cold War, instead of two candidates advocating for two ideas on how to do that, you have two candidates advocating for whether or not we remain engaged the way that we are. And Biden promises a return to what many people would call normal, given that many people at this point have been around since, well, no one's been around since before the Cold War, basically. And a return to normal means a return to the way in which we did things during the Cold War. That means allies in far-flung places. That means uh, maintaining that alliance. It means maintaining global order. It means being in places that we don't want to be for reasons that we, quite frankly, don't feel that affect us. And Trump represents the opposite. It represents the break from this global order. It represents a break from the way in which we've been doing things for the past couple decades. Really, the past 70 years, if I'm being honest. And um, Trump represents an end to uh, the way in which we've done things internationally. An end to internationalism, really. Because Trump is, of course, a nationalist. He is forcefully rewriting trade deals. That's what he spent the first half of his administration on. Um, he's removed us from agreements that he felt were disproportionately uh, against America, like the Paris Climate Accords. And an interesting tidbit about that is that the Americans are the only ones who, within the Accords who actually met their carbon reduction goals. And that is hilarious. <laughs> but he represents a break from the international order that we have actually been upholding since the beginning of the Cold War, and which means since the end of the Second World War. And that has implications that reach very far and reach deep. And um, as far as America specifically goes, um, if Trump wins, uh, we will continue our long road to isolationism. And I think I brought this up before, that America goes through... Uh, well, every country has, like, historical cycles, um, like a swing of the pendulum, so to speak, and those cycles are more so determined by their geography, because geography is always consistent. Uh, like, China, for instance, has periods where they are disunified, and it's a, if it's, it'd be a, it, it's a mess if you were to look at it on a map and actually see which areas of China were controlled by who, it would be a mess, and it would probably give you eye cancer. 
<laughs> but they have periods like that, and then they have periods of consolidation where China is increasingly being unified by a central government that is strengthening itself. And then it has periods of disillusion where the central government begins losing power and they crack down in response, and that crackdown only serves to usher in a return to the first period, which is fractured, a very fractured China. That's the historical cycle that China follows. And we have thousands of years of Chinese history uh, to confirm this. The, uh, what do we get? The Europeans, uh, Germany, the area that Germany inhabits at the very least, has periods where they are the uncontested power of Europe, even when they were a collection of thousands of principalities at one time, under the Holy Roman Empire, they have periods where they are the undisputed number one on the continent, and periods when they are, again, fra like China, fractured, and everyone else is able to uh, exert influence on various pieces of what we now call Germany. And they unify on either under the edict of outside powers who force the German states to play nice, or in this time around, at the very, uh, I keep saying at the very least, this time around, uh, they have German governments. The last couple rounds of that German weakness and strength cycle has been under an actual German government. Uh, you had Prussia, who united the Germany the German-speaking world, uh, well, minus Austria, you know, the United Germany, there was an actual Germany for once, then Germany lost World War One, and they were weak, you had the Weimar Republic, which was really weak, and then you had, and during that time, you had them paying reparations to the Entente, who had won the war, and after that, you had the Third Reich, and they were very strong and the undisputed number one on the continent. They literally rewrote the rules of war. And then they were torn down and you had the Americans and the Soviets. And at one point you had the Americans, British and French occupying pieces of Germany on top of the Soviets. But then it was um, West Germany occupied mainly by the Americans and East Germany occupied by the Soviets. Now you have the Republic of Germany who is the undisputed number one on the continent, and they are unified under a German government. So that's their cycle. And America, and I, I bring all those up specifically so you understand what I mean when I say historical cycles for countries, because America's historical cycles uh, are periods of great strength followed where we are undisputed almost in the entire world. You know, even when we were really, really weak, the mobilization of America, it was this ridiculous thing. Uh, we had periods of extreme strength where we can stand up to the strongest powers of the day. And then followed immediately by periods of, uh, you could say weakness, but more so isolationism uh, to extreme degrees. Um in my examples for this being, you had the Revolutionary War. Well, actually, no, no, no. I'll, we'll go to the War of 1812. 
in the War of 1812, when we were actually a country, you had this period where we had basically nothing. We had basically no army, and we declared war on the British, who at the time were preoccupied with Napoleon, but then Napoleon was defeated, and the British turned their eyes on us. We, a third world nation at the time, uh, eventually grew, after losing much ground and many battles, grew strong enough to fight the British man-to-man, and ultimately culminating in one of the worst uh, defeats that the British had suffered at that point in their history, in the Battle of New Orleans. Again, we, we were a very big third world country at the time. So you had that. Then fast forward to the American Civil War. You had the Union, which was mobilized. They mobilized an army of around 2 million men. Um, and they fought the Confederates. Now, what happened? You had the, at the end of the Civil War, you had the Union Army of 2 million men, battle-hardened veterans with uh, actually good leadership this time, because uh, it took a while before Lincoln got the good generals in the high command. So at that point, the while we were fighting ourselves, the British and French and the Spanish, to a lesser degree, they were doing. Um, they were invading Mexico. Uh, the British never really joined. The Spanish kind of opted out later on, but the French was still there when the American Civil War was over. And the French pulled out immediately when they caught word that the Americans were planning to march down to deal with them and force them out with at gunpoint, basically. And we, at that point, were strong enough to fight off the Europeans because um, we had a very large army and they were battle-hardened army. We were effectively the strongest military force on the planet, on land and at sea, because we had ironclads at the time, which, which at that time were indestructible. You couldn't destroy them with munitions of the day. We were the number one power very briefly. And then after that, you had a period of extreme American isolationism. Just like after the War of 1812, America hunkered down on itself for the obvious reason of running to reintegrate the South into the Union and the war weariness of fighting for four years. So, and after that, you had uh, World War I, where we were drawn out of our isolationism, which kept us out for, until the Germans basically bribed uh, Mexico to invade our South. Then we went to war. We mobilized. Uh, we weren't actually at war for very long. We could barely arm ourselves because most of the guns and artillery and artillery shells that we were making were going to the Europeans. But we had mobilized an army of a couple million men in a matter of months and basically outnumbered the Germans and the Austrians and the Ottomans by ourselves by the end of the war. And that was followed by isolationism. World War II was the exception, because after this period of the greatest strength America had ever seen, where we were able to outmatch all the Axis powers combined and almost all of the Allied powers minus the Soviets combined, um, and 
it was this ridiculous climb in strength of the American juggernaut, really. That was the exception, not just in how the heights, the unbelievable heights we had achieved, but we didn't go back into isolationism because we had, for the first time, occupied the country in question that we had uh, instituted this mobilization for. We, that was Germany, that was Japan, that was South Korea. But on the other side of all those borders were the Soviets. And we were drawn into a long, multi-decade long contest with the Soviets that effectively kept us from going back into our shell. But in 1991, the Soviets collapsed. They disintegrated. And suddenly the reason for us being in all these really weird places disappeared. And we've been pulling back ever since. Uh, really, our alliance has been running on momentum. And now we're at this point where, again, Donald Trump is representing a break from all of that. Which is essentially in line with our historical cycles. We have had this period of great strength. And now it's going to be followed by a period of extreme isolationism. Now... We've been in this period of strength for a very long time, so I expect the transition to isolationism to take longer, and whether or not the period of isolationism that follows will be longer than the others uh, is still up for debate, at least inside my own head, because I'm kind of the only one who views uh, a new era of American isolationism as coming, like, soon. So... I can't say specifically how long that new era will last. I just know that with Trump, it's coming. It, it will come. And with Biden, uh, you might see another four years of the old way of doing things. But I don't expect that to last, uh, even if Biden manages to win a second term. I expect some new guy... Uh, to go even farther than Trump did. Because you can't exactly put down populism that easily. So, I that's the trend I see moving forward for America. And that is a return to isolationism. Now, I've gone on a very long rant about historical cycles. Uh, just to get to the point about America. But, uh, I really want to stress that cycle of isolationism followed, which follows periods of great strength. Because this period of great strength has lasted for so long, to the point where so many countries uh, allied and enemy alike are, have basically uh, how do I put it? They have based their view on how they operate around America. And what the Americans will or won't do. Um, and I say that because if we're going, because if our historical cycles are, if my analysis of our historical cycles is accurate, and we truly are heading towards another period of isolationism, which <clears throat> I do believe I am correct, a lot of countries are going to be left out in the cold. And we'll start with our allies. And they will find an increasing necessity to fend for themselves. 
Now, I saw a video where uh, this, it was this DW mini documentary about how Trump was kind of good for NATO in a way because it scared them into uh, not freeloading on the Americans. But in the world I see coming, Trump is kind of going to be like a foreshadowing as to what will come. And that is an America that isn't there with you telling you to hold up your end of the deal, but instead an America that's not there at all. And you can choose not to, you can choose not to defend yourself at your own peril because the Russians have an army and you don't. That's what I see coming. And that's obviously a catastrophic uh, alternative for Europe and many other countries who are dependent on America security uh, largesse for their very existence, even when we aren't there in person. I personally see the Brits doing the best. The Brits doing the best. Mainly because of um, the post-Brexit moves that they are making now. They have a Canadian trade deal on deck. Their Prime Minister of Canada, Justin Trudeau, is optimistic in a deal being finalized before the end of 2020. That is a trade deal. And the Kenzuk petition has been launched for the UK Parliament. It needs 10,000 uh, signatures just to get a response from the government and 100,000 in order for Parliament to debate on it. Uh, we'll see where that goes. But uh, back to the point of what American isolationism is going to mean for the wider world, it means Eastern Europe is likely to be screwed. Uh, I'll just put it light. That's putting it lightly because nobody else in Europe has an, a military worthy of the name except for the British and the French. I don't know if the French are going to be willing to go on the other side of the continent to fight off a potential Russian incursion. Uh, my bet would be no. Especially if they're dealing with internal strife or economic hardship due to the lockdowns. And lockdowns, that well, that's one of the reasons why I keep bringing up the lockdowns, because it, it is geopolitical, really. Countries like China that are undoing, that have already undone the lockdowns, the Chinese have already undone them, and if Trump wins, America will continue to undo them. Countries that have undone their lockdowns are going to do better in the long term and in the future than the countries that are effectively committing uh, economic suicide right now. No. And that's why I keep bringing up the lockdowns. They are geopolitical, and they will have geopolitical consequences. F for some countries, it'll be great. For others, it'll be terrible and just like American isolationism because isolationism means for our enemies right now say the Taliban, Iran, North Korea it allows them to basically ignore American because the Americans will be ignoring them so they will see increasing opportunities to maneuver in their regions as they see fit I saw an article just today that's my my alarm. I just saw an article today about the Taliban being assisted by Al-Qaeda in one of their attacks on the um, Afghan government. 
And just a couple, what was it, last year, there was uh, a ceasefire supposedly signed between the, the fighting sides, which was the Afghan government and the Taliban. Uh, and the ceasefire, the American withdrawal was dependent on a decrease in violence. And me personally, I looked at that and said, what does a decrease in violence mean? Because you could point to the beginning of the Afghan invasion and compare that to any violence that you see today and go, oh, look, there's an, a decrease in violence. And then you continue walking away. And given the lack of response that America has given to these attacks and the teaming up of the Taliban and Al Qaeda, uh, it looks like I was right. The Americans are leaving and they're not coming back. So these enemies of ours, the Taliban, Al-Qaeda, eventually Iran, probably not North Korea, because North Korea is kind of boxed in, really, but Iran will have room to maneuver in their regions as they see fit. And as far as our rivals go, you know, China, Russia, and for the time being, the EU, they have increasing opportunities to reshape their regions and to a lesser extent the wider world to their liking i see a new russian empire coming i see a new chinese dynasty coming i see a new balance of european powers uh n note the plural in that powers because i the eu is unlikely to make it to the end at the end of the century no at the very least they're not going to make it at this rate because you have uh, they will be plagued with secessionist movements basically for the rest of their being, starting with Brexit. And once the British get back on their feet and with all these trade deals that they're talking about, it's looking like that's going to be faster and sooner rather than later. You're going to have constant secessionist crises in the EU that will eventually tear them down. Which means you're going to have European powers, plural, rather than the EU. So, what that means, uh, it means a return to normal for Europe. It means that this period of luxury where history has been put on hold comes to an end. Namely, because the Americans are not... When the EU is gone, the Americans are going to be gone too. Which means there's going to be no one to stop the Europeans from shooting at each other. No. Will they do that? Will they shoot at each other immediately? No. Will they shoot at each other 10, 20, 30 years down the line? Or 10, 20, 30 years after the EU is gone officially? Yes. Because the Europeans have disputes and issues. And if they're on their own, they're going to feel the need to build up a military worthy of the name. And some people are going to want to use those militaries to do things. The Chinese will continuously exert influence in places around the world, namely Africa, namely the Middle East and Central Asia for their Belt and Road Initiative. Um, and Russia will probably find itself in a contest with China over Central Asia, which I believe, I believe, I don't believe the Chinese would necessarily fight the Russians if the Russians tried to make a direct attempt at occupying Central Asia because the Russians are in agreement with the Belt and Road. So they wouldn't, the Chinese wouldn't necessarily see too much interference in their plans. 
regarding the Belt and Road. But as far as influencing the countries themselves, the Chinese would probably offer pushback, but they have other opportunities and other focuses elsewhere, whereas this would be a matter of core Russian uh, interest. So expect the big, fat, beautiful borders that the Russians used to have uh, at some point in the future. And whether or not they're able to reverse their demographic decline is another issue entirely. Uh, uh, we'll see where that goes. Uh, but I do see lots of conflict. Lots of conflict will pop up as a result of countries having to fend for themselves and as a result of American rivals feeling naturally empowered to uh, make a, act a fool in their neighborhoods. And from that, I can extend to the last topic, which is the potential end to international order as we know it today. Now, I know this episode is going a bit over time, but th this is a beefy one. It's a really important one. And it took me, which is why it took me longer to make. And the reason I bring up this potential end to international order as we know it today is because it means nothing without someone to back it up. And that was what international order used to be. It used to be collections of countries that were willing to put the guns where their mouth were <laughs> in order to make things happen and impose restrictions on countries that otherwise wouldn't cooperate. That was what international order used to be. As a matter of fact, international order used to be uh, the laws with which an empire would enforce across its vast reach from its core territories to its um, other territories. That used to be international order. And any agreement between uh, empires was also international order. Because you'd have a single country owning vast swaths of land or pieces of uh, and splotches of land that really didn't reflect the home territory too much. I know the British Empire was a little different, but the better example would be the French Empire and the Russian Empire, these multi-ethnic empires with a specific um, group of people that formed the core of the empire. With the Russians, it was the ethnic Russians, the Slavic peoples, and with the French, it was, obviously, the French peoples. That was what international order used to be. I international order only existed for countries that could not fight their way out of it, which is how the Ottomans ended up going into perpetual decline, because they, they could not fight their way out of the restrictions imposed on them by countries that did not like them. That's what international order used to be like. It's nothing like what we think of today, but what we think of today only exists because the Americans are willing to enforce it. You have the Americans doing freedom of the seas, uh, freedom of navigation exercises in the South China Sea. But as America continues to pull back, will they continue doing that? And I personally don't believe they will. And even the Australians have complained about this, where the Americans will show up, make a fuss, and then leave. And the people in the region have to deal with an angry China. So that's... That's the end of international order as I as we know it today. And some of the key examples that I can bring up as to 
why exactly it kind of already is at an end today. Some of the examples I can bring up just off the top of my head are the Eastern Mediterranean, the dispute that occurred there, the Himalayas between China and India, the South China Sea between China and all of the people and countries that live in in the South China Sea, so Vietnam, the Philippines, Malaysia, Brunei, Taiwan, and now India, because India is a part of the anti-China coalition in the real Cold War. International order is already at an end. And it really stops nothing when you look at just these three regions alone. Um, it stops nothing and no one from trying to assert their claims when they feel that they are stronger than their neighbors. And even America is guilty of this and we're the country that gives meaning to international law. Even we are guilty of this when we invaded Iraq the second time and when we use our drones to bomb would-be terrorists in the Middle East even when they're civilians so so you can imagine what happens when America is gone oh sorry there's lots of noise but um we're going through trying times right now we are going through trying times right now and like the trying times that came before radical change is on the table many are beginning to take up and make those radical changes be it the embrace of authoritarianism via extreme lockdowns or in some cases the embrace of democracy and the end of a monarchy like in Brunei uh, it's all over the place and we are in the thick of it so I really can't say for sure how this all is gonna play out because uh, I just don't know I do know however that we are on the verge of something new globally and eventually it'll lead to something more old and more historical but for the time being it's going to be something new and for some it will spell abject disaster and I think Africa and the Middle East are gonna be at the forefront of said disasters and for reasons that I've brought up just now with many African nations being not food secure and that same reason applying to uh, countries in the desert with no food that they can grow themselves so I see them bearing the brunt of crisis in the future and for others this is likely to be a chance for something far greater than anything we've ever seen before. Think Britain, think China, America, Turkey, and Russia. These countries are likely to see something, well, a lot better than what many other parts of the world are going to go through. Now, can they screw this up? Yes, yes they can. But, it's look, given the cards I've seen them play, it's looking like they are going to rule the future. So, they'll have a good time uh did i bring up france did i bring up france because i believe france is also gonna have a good time i did not bring up france but uh, france is gonna have a good time too ah that's um 
that's uh, a, a big one. It's a really big one. It's uh, probably the longest episode I've done so far, and when I've done uh, a little bit last time to try to curb uh, making my episodes go over an hour, and I know I did pretty good with that uh, before, but this one was big and had a lot of important things that I wanted to cover. Um, cause I, I keep bringing up how we are in changing times, but I don't know. I, I just, I can't shake this feeling, this feeling that we're really just on the, the tip of the iceberg of something. I don't know what that something is, but I, I can feel it coming. Maybe, maybe it's this mass unrest. Maybe it's the, a global communist revolution, <laughs> Maybe aliens show up tomorrow and they land on the White House lawn. Who knows? Maybe maybe they go to the Kremlin instead. That'll that'll send people into a panic. <laughs> but uh, uncertainty aside, and the fun of speculation momentarily put to rest. Um, that's uh, about it for today. Now, I hope you have enjoyed today's broadcast. I know we were a little bit all over the place. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast and my geopolitical podcast. <laughs> I messed up my closing here. But uh, forget a script. We're, we're <laughs> but um, I, no, seriously, seriously. Well, I know we've been all over the place and it may have been hard to follow me at times. But I do hope genuinely that you've enjoyed today's broadcast on my geopolitical podcast because if for nothing else we can see with our own eyes that the world is changing folks and we can also see with our ears if you're listening to me that we are going to have fun watching it together now i have been your host hi sean wade and you've been listening to the longest episode of this week in geopolitics to this date. So, see you next Monday when we meet again. And hopefully we know who the president is at that time. All right, see you later.